My name is Elizabeth Wathuti. I am a youth climate activist from Kenya. I have done a lot of soul searching about what to say here today. I have asked myself over and over what words might move you. And then I realized that making my four minutes count does not rest solely on me. My truth will only land if you have the grace to fully listen. My story will only move you if you can open up your heart. Welcome to the People vs. Inequality podcast. In a time of crisis and fast change, this podcast is a space to reflect and learn with changemakers on how to tackle inequality. By diving into the choices they make and the approaches they take, but also the obstacles they face and their hopes and dreams in making real change happen. In this second season of the People vs. Inequality podcast, we focus on climate justice. As the climate crisis is accelerating and inequalities are on the rise, we ask, how can we get urgent climate action that is also just? Should we be taken to the streets or lobby the halls of power? And how to come together across movements to make sure all voices are heard? Let's take this opportunity to hear from inspiring changemakers on how they try to turn the tide. My name is Barbara van Passen. I am the host of this podcast and always looking for how to make change happen. We are kicking off this series with one of the most inspiring climate activists of today. Elizabeth Wathuti shows that youth climate activism is not new, as she planted her first tree at age seven and founded the Green Generation Initiative in 2015. In the footsteps of late environmentalist and Nobel Prize winner Wangari Mathai, this youth-led organization has now planted over 50,000 trees across Kenya. She is also a recognized global, global young leader whose heartfelt keynote speech at COP26 we just heard from. We ask what climate justice looks like for her and how a grassroots approach with African youth can help us get beyond the blah blah. We hear why she called on governments to open their hearts at the recent speech. And of course, what gives her hope? This and more in today's episode of the People vs. Inequality podcast. So please grab a coffee or tea and listen in on the conversation. So welcome, Elizabeth. It's really great to have you here. Thank you so much for having me. I know you're very busy, so we really appreciate you taking the time. And I just wanted to ask, first of all, how are you? Uh, did you manage to take some rest after this crazy period of COP and all the work you're doing? Yes, I'm doing great. I must say that COP26 was really exhausting the two weeks of moving everywhere and trying to get things done in the right way. And so we definitely needed that kind of rest. So I took the holiday at home over Christmas and the new year, and now I'm back re-energized for the new year. Good. I'm very happy to hear that. I saw on Twitter that you also watched the movie Don't Look Up during yes. this break, as did I. What was your impression? When I watched Don't Look Up, it really implied and really paints a picture of what is happening in the world right now. And I think I am in that category of people that are feeling frustrated, angry, you know, and that despair of witnessing the world and a world that's dying. But then there's, on the other hand, there are people that are trying to 
hide the truth and not get people to really understand what is happening. And I think it's the same thing that happens with the people in power. We're trying to speak up. We're trying to get people to listen to the science, trying to get people to actually act, to open their hearts and act, but still get shut down in a way. And I think Don't Look Up paints a picture of today's world. And if anything, I think more people should have that call to action to do something about the climate crisis, because then at the end of the day, people will realize, you know, the scientists were right, the activists were right, but we don't have to get to that point where when things go bad, it's when we start to regret why we didn't do something when we had all the time. So we have all the time, we have all the resources, we have everything it takes. It's just for us to step up and do what we must do. Yeah, thank you for that. I think that's a very spot on analysis and there's already a lot to unpack there in terms of the powers and the challenges you and we are up against in this. So that we'll definitely come back to that as well. And in this conversation, I'm really interested to hear from you, you know, how is it that we are going to do this and bring in your particular perspective as well? I know that you grew up in, a, in the most forested area in, in Kenya and that what you saw there, both in terms of the power of conservation, but also the forces of environmental destruction have really made you be very passionate about this topic and actually take action. And I'm very curious to start, you know, what is it that made you decide that planting trees, that protecting the environment and, and now standing up for climate justice is what you need to be doing? How did you end up where you are today? As a child, I definitely didn't know much about the natural resources that were around me. But again, I had a chance and an opportunity to drink from clean streams, to spend time close to bushes that were still intact, not interfered with by man. But right now, that natural world that my friends and I knew as children has continued to change completely before our eyes. But then having that strong love and connection with nature also made me feel the pain of nature caused by environmental degradation. And that is why I do believe that for me, I did not wait for anyone to ask me to do something, to use my voice or to step up and act on solutions with my communities. It was a natural call to action. And the reason why this natural call to action came within me is because of that love that I had cultivated with the natural world and that compassion to really want to see people in your community thriving, to want to see people not having to bear the worst impacts of climate change or not seeing people having to suffer from the consequences of people destroying the natural world. And I remember at some point I walked into this beautiful forest that I knew as a child and where I planted my first tree when I was seven. And I went there to really see how beautiful the forest had grown. But when I got there, there were more tree stumps and tree logs compared to the trees that I had expected. And it was a point of reflection for me. I could not understand why anyone would destroy such a beautiful forest. And I think for me, this is the same form of energy that I'm trying to cultivate into the world, to have love for nature, to have compassion for the people, because then we will be able to value people and our planet above the profits. And that to me is what made me be on the front line. And also I've been inspired by a lot of people along the way. And one of them is the late Professor Sangare Mathai, who was the member of parliament in my home region when I was growing up. She was selfless. And although I did not physically meet her, 
I draw so much inspiration from her books and one of them being Unbowed, which still happens to be my favorite, just seeing how selfless she was and every resource that she fought to protect back then, my generation is enjoying right now. And that to me would be the same sort of courageous leadership that I would follow in and also really would expect to see from everyone, from the world leaders, a type of leadership that is selfless, that you're doing things today, not because of your own self, you know, selfish gains, but because you are building a future for your children for the next generation. That's very powerful. Both the love and the pain is is very clear, I think, in your story and and in activism, probably more broadly. Just for our, our listeners, because I'm sure many know Wangari Matai, Professor Wangari Matai, but could you say really briefly just what she did, which is too much to capture on this show, but very courageous leadership. What is it that inspires you today that you're trying to put to practice? So Wangari Matai was the first woman in Eastern Central Africa to earn a doctorate and also the first African woman to win the Nobel Peace Prize for her efforts in environmental conservation. But one thing that strongly stood for me is because today, every weekend, I visit this forest in Kenya that's called Karura Forest. And I also visit uh, Hurubak. But really, Karura Forest was a forest that was being grabbed and privatized by the government but she did everything that she could at her time with women in the grassroots and really fought for this forest and today it is a protected forest and she also stood strongly and stopped the development of a tower in one of the central parks in Nairobi that's Uhuru Park and what really inspired me about her is how she really emphasized on the power of grassroots women, she realized that women in her community were struggling to find food, were struggling to find firewood, were struggling to even find water. And then she took that challenge and decided to find solutions out of the challenges. She believed in addressing the challenges from the root causes. And that's when she started mobilizing women to also grow tree seedlings and start up tree nurseries so that they could earn an income and a living. And at the same time, they would continue to forest their regions. And also thanks to her, that's why I come from the most forested region in Kenya, because she led a whole grassroots movement of women to grow trees in their farms and around their communities. And today we are reaping those benefits. So I would say she was that kind of selfless leader. She believed also in the power of trees to bring peace to the communities. She brought all that interlinkage between sustainable development, governance, and peace, which is true. And that's the same system right now that we need to be interlinking, that without good governance, we cannot have our natural resources protected. Without good governance, we cannot have our ecosystems intact. And in the process, we cannot have peace. So trying to bring a connection with all these pillars, then it strengthens the way in which we act and then we are able to approach the challenges from the roots causes and then we are able to easily solve them. And that would be the same case with the climate and ecological crisis that we are in right now. Thanks for that. I'm truly inspired by her as well. And I think this holistic approach and the work with women is incredibly important. As you see, everything comes together there. And I was wondering how, because today you are working with young people at the grassroots, planting trees, nurturing their love for nature. Can you say a little bit more about how that looks like and how you see it tying into building a more just and sustainable world? In 2016, I founded the Green Generation Initiative, 
to create a generation of environmentally conscious individuals. And this was to deeply cultivate that natural call to action. So I started a tree growing campaign and tree growing because so many people around the world are planting trees. But the big question is how many of the trees that are being planted in the world actually get to grow to maturity? Because that is where impact starts. Impact is not planting 5 million trees. Impact is getting those 5 million trees to grow to maturity. So it's about the process of getting the trees to grow. And that's why I started this campaign that I dubbed Adopt a Tree Campaign to get every child in every school in my country to plant and adopt a tree each in the school compound. But along the way, impacts of climate change like food insecurity, we realize they're impacting the children the most. They're the ones that have to come to school and spend a whole day without a meal. And they're expected to study, they're expected to understand and really be part of the education system, which really is not fair for these children. And so we decided to begin growing trees that can actually support their food system and in a way that support the way in which the schools feed their children. And so we started establishing food forests in schools where we, we pick a designated corner in the school compound and plant mixed species of fruit trees. And this would mean that in and out of seasons, these children have something nutritious for them to feed at the end of the day because every fruit has got its own season. So when you mix them up, it means it's in and out of seasons. And again, the children are going to be able to really have that culture and also that consciousness of what surrounds them because they are the ones that are taking care of these trees. They are the ones that are watching the seedlings growing from a tiny seed to a mighty tree. And at the end of the day, they are able to get that connection with nature. And so this will be a different generation that is conscious of the environment. They understand the value that comes with these trees. So part of how we train the children and nurture them is to make it as experiential as possible. If we're talking about pollution, we will take the kids even younger kids in kindergarten to a stream that is actually polluted, they will see the difference between that polluted stream and one that is actually clean. And they will want to do something about that stream or rather they will want to understand who did this, who made this stream polluted and what can we as children do about it? And then we will tell them, you can use your voices to get your leaders to act. And you can also use your little hands to do something about this stream to plant bamboos along it to make the water uh, more purified. And these are the steps in which we are being through this initiative. And it's exciting working with kids, seeing how much they are so positive and energized about saving the planet. But again, we are working in a system that seems to be working against the young people because these children are planting trees in their school compound. But on the other side of the school compound, they see governments or big corporations cutting down mighty trees, destroying ecosystems. And it's not helping because it's undermining the efforts of these little ones. So it tells you that that's the kind of system and world that we are working in where young people want to see the change. They want to build a livable world and a safe future. But again, we have to crack down the system that is working against this population. Yeah, I think that's so important that you're you're working at that very practical and also individual nurturing level, but you're not ignoring that there is a big system at play that needs to be addressed. And I guess your hope is that these kids one day might be the ministers 
or speaking at a COP like you recently did and bringing their passion and their love for nature and the planet to those spaces, right? If you could say a little bit more, because you also, besides your Green Generation Initiative, you also work with the Wangari Matai Foundation, if I'm not mistaken, and you you do campaigning and and storytelling. and, And that's something that you also, I think, often talk about is that it's so important to tell those stories because climate change is not something of the future. Can you say a little bit about how, at the moment, what do you see and how to get those stories out in a way that makes people act? Yes, so I had campaigns at the Wangara Mathai Foundation and one of the key campaigns is a coalition that I coordinate. It's called Daima. And uh, it's a coalition of civic actors who have come together to advocate for urban green spaces protection. And this is because... Along the way, we realized that Nairobi, being the capital city of Kenya, had its green spaces, you know, diminishing at an alarming rate. And of course, this is due to development and at the same time, the fact that we have not learned how to strike a balance between infrastructure development and our green spaces. At one point in time, the Nairobi Expressway that is currently being constructed in Kenya was going to hive off parts of Uhuru Park in Kenya. And of course, people stood their ground and the foundation organized an event where we brought people to reflect on the history and the work and life of uh, Professor Ngai Mathai and also the history of Uhuru Park. And seeing over 3,000 people showing up, occupying the park and saying, this is our space, this is our green space, this is a people's park, and we want to see it protected. It got us thinking that this could be the beginning of a movement where we get people and and get people to rally behind the aspect of protecting urban green spaces. Along the way also with this coalition, we managed to save a 100 year old iconic fig tree. And this was through a march, a protest. And there was a lot of media coverage that supported us. And eventually the tree got a presidential declaration to conserve it out of the efforts of, of what we did. But there's a whole interconnection of things of how everything works, that there is this generation that understands, feels strongly, knows that this is how things must go. But then we have a whole system, again, that really tries to undermine some of these efforts. And that is the feeling of every young person right now, Mm -hmm. that everyone is doing what they're doing right now because we want to have the kind of future that we all envision. And... On the other hand, we have people who actually do not care about how their actions today and decisions today will impact the next generations. And so being able to drive such a coalition and being able to every day think of new ways of how can we appeal to people directly? How can we get the leaders to act? How can we get the civil society to join? How can we get everybody to be a part of the solution? How can we drive that collective action? For me, is usually the biggest highlight because All this work comes with challenges and challenges that are actually more heartfelt because if I can feel that pain, I want everybody else to feel the pain Mm. with me. Clearly, people coming together and organizing is what historically has has been the way to address, to change the system, right? I mean, the work of Professor Wangari Matai shows that as well. So it's quite exciting to hear what you're doing, even though the powers against you are so big and um, there must be a lot of disappointments and grief on the way. But what I hear you're saying is also that you're really combining all kinds of sort of creative strategies, tactics to bring in different people. And that's also part of what I love. It's a very creative work. And if you see that people get inspired by what you're doing, I bet that's really exciting. 
I just wanted to talk a little bit more about how you see this sort of movement building, organizing, and especially also the role of young people. How do you see this leading to decision makers, people that hold power and, and money, really taking different decisions? Can you say a little bit more about how you're trying to do it, both at the national level, but also at the global level? Because then we'll talk a little bit more about COP later. I see a lot of influence coming from people power because the people strongly understand that we are in a crisis and they strongly understand that we need to move into the right direction. And this is the population that will get the leaders to act as well. This is the population that will get the leaders to change because there's this quote that the late Prof. Sangare Mathai always said, and I hold on to that quote dearly because it's true and it's what is happening to the world. And it says that those of us who understand, who feel strongly must not tire and we must not give up because the burden is on us who know and those who don't know are at peace. So it is us who know that get disturbed and are caused to take action. So this movement of civil societies, young people, communities, indigenous communities, people who strongly understand, they are disturbed greatly. And if we remain silent, things are not going to move. If we do not put pressure on the people in power, if we do not put pressure on our leaders, they will not move. And even looking at the way the youth climate movement has been evolving over time, we are beyond the era of climate denial right now because there has been pressure. We've been trying to ask everybody, listen to the science, but then we need to move a step further. What next? We need to now do what must be done. And I think right now, the people that are going to make that real change happen and the people that are already making the change happen are the people, you know, the civil societies, young people, people who are actually also being impacted by climate change. They are the ones who every day are not just sitting back and feeling helpless. They are the ones who are stepping up, working on solutions every day. But then we have to get this other population to join us. It has to be collective action, but they will not without our pressure. So I think that to me is the most important thing that would get everybody right now. And that's why we are asking people, we need more climate activists. We need everybody to be a climate activist. There's also a whole thing about intergenerational injustices where the generation that has contributed the least to the crisis are the ones that have to deal with the impacts. They're the ones that have to now get the previous generations to do something about the crisis. Children have contributed zero emissions, mm. but yet when the impacts come, they're the most impacted. Right now, they're the ones on the streets trying to get their leaders to act. They're the ones trying to grow trees in their school compounds. They're the ones trying to do all sorts of things to address the crisis. And that's the problem. So if anything, this movement has got a lot of power right now. And I would say it's a growing mass movement of people who want to see change in this planet. And I think this is a population that will also get the leaders to do something. Yeah, thanks for that. That's a very empowering message, I think. And what I find really interesting and, and really important, because this podcast is, is about people taking on inequalities and really about a social justice angle to this work. And I mean, in the past, this has been 
there maybe has been more of an environmental focus within the climate sphere. And these days I find that from the Fridays for Futures sort of youth movements to other global social movements and, and environmental organizations, there is really this understanding of this being a, a human and a social crisis as well. And one that needs to be tackled in ways that addresses those inequalities rather than enhances them. And I was wondering if you see the same also sitting in Kenya, in Africa, the continent that has least contributed to this crisis and one of the most affected. Do you see uh, this growing recognition within the movement that those inequalities need addressing? And how can we make sure that the action is not only urgently taken, but also in ways that really, you know, includes the voices of people that are being affected? Yes, I strongly agree that the climate crisis is also a social justice issue right now. And if we are to have climate justice, we have to recognize the root causes of the climate crisis. Looking at the past historical emissions, for example, countries that have contributed the most to this crisis, there's still the struggle, for example, for climate finance to countries that are facing the worst impacts of the climate crisis right now. And all of these things are built on empty promises. They are built on commitments that we still never see them being realized. And yeah. yet every delay in action continues to cause more lives and, and livelihoods being lost. And this tells you that we have not really recognized the injustices, you know, the heartbreaks that have come, that have gone into this crisis. Because if we have then, we would be acting in swiftly and with the people that are the most impacted in mind. And I was saying that, you know, the, the conferences that we run every day, the COPs, the forums that we meet every day, the people that are the most impacted are not still even well represented. They're not only fighting yeah. for accountability from people who have contributed to this crisis, but they're also fighting for representation, which should not be the case. Because if it is not about the people that are the most impacted, then what is it about? Despite the fact that Africa is the most impacted by the climate crisis, this is where most of the solutions that we talk about every day in the conference rooms are taking place. Yeah. Women coming together to restore ecosystems, women coming together to grow their own food, even when they're hit by drought, trying to get things to work for them. But still, these are solutions that the world does not recognize that they need to be scaled up. They need finances to make sure that they are well scaled up, that they're making a wider impact. And we haven't really talked about COP yet, but of course you gave this amazing speech there that really moved these same leaders that you are talking about. At least some of them seem to be genuinely moved by it because you asked for a, a moment of compassionate silence. And I think this really speaks to the things that you're saying around acknowledging the, the grief and the pain and the loss that people are already feeling. Am I right? Definitely. So one of the reasons why I took this approach at COP26 is because we have had this movement for so many years. We have tried to use certain words, we have tried to use certain aspects to get the leaders to do something, but still the feeling is that no one is listening. And I am one of the young people who have felt the pain of speaking and not feeling hard. And I remember just two months before COP26, I spoke in this big EU forum and I was 
speaking about how climate change is impacting my community in really heartfelt messages of even sharing about the 2.1 million Kenyans who are facing climate-related starvation. And I remember I, I, I shared a really heartfelt message and after I was done with my message, it was a virtual session, but this moderator, you know, like wraps it up and, you know, thanks me for being a breath of fresh air and then hurriedly moves on to the next speaker. And I kept asking myself, how many other people in this forum were actually not listening to my message? Because mm. there is how you take a message if you are actually listening, you know, if, if you have felt it in your heart, if we were mm. on the same page. And there's how you will take it and you know, transition if you are actually not present with me. And that's how it felt like. So I was really having the fears of speaking again on such a big platform. I have mm. never spoken to what leaders that directly, but really speaking and leaving the podium or rather leaving the stage and feeling still not heard by anyone. And so I kept writing different speeches and I remember I had almost five versions of it. And one version was somehow motivation and I was like, no, I don't think this will move anyone. So I kept doing that every time. I had a really hard time trying to get this message across. And then at some point I thought to myself, I think what is missing is that we are also facing a crisis of feeling and a crisis of listening. And how do we address this? Because if we were listening, we would do what must be done. And if we are acting from a position of feeling it in our hearts, then that's the bit where you feel disturbed and you cannot sit back and do nothing. It just calls you naturally to do something about it. And so I thought to myself, this is about love. This is about compassion. I need to appeal to people's hearts to actually act from within themselves because unless even if I use so many words or tell them about what is happening that ability to act must come from deep within because you cannot force anyone to act it has to come from deep within mm -hmm. and the only way for it to come from deep within is to appeal directly to people's hearts and that is why I came up with this message of opening your hearts and I decided to actually humanize the climate crisis and paint a picture of things I have seen with my own eyes and also how that made me feel as a young person. I remember at the World Leader Summit, you know, asking the leaders to open their hearts and, and take immediate action. But at the end of the COP, I think what they came up with, that's the Glasgow package, it still spells great danger for our co continent. And if you look at the current policies right now, they're still taking the world towards a 2.7 degrees Celsius of warming. Mm -hmm. And even if all of those government pledges that were made in Glasgow are fulfilled, we are still on track for 2.1 degrees. And this means that my continent in Africa is going to experience double that rate of warming. But on the other hand, there's that big win in Glasgow, which was the fact that the leaders promised to come back again next year to revisit their level of ambition. But for me, if anything is going to change, they will need to feel much, much greater pressure. But we have to get it right. How do we appeal to them to do what must be done? So one of my focus for this year is actually humanizing the climate crisis. And this is through telling you know the crisis and the stories as it is right now 
And so I'm going to be spending the rest of my year spending so much time listening and staying together with people who are directly being impacted by the climate crisis. And I want to listen to them. I want to have that emotional connection with them as well. And that's the best way to be able to also paint the same picture to the leaders, to people who are not there, people who are out of the country. We need to get them to understand that we are in a crisis. People are going through the worst impacts right now. And that's going to be one of my focus. So I'm going to be doing a lot of those visits in my own country because we have different regions, the arid and semi-arid regions right now are the most impacted by the crisis. There are countries right now that are still facing the hunger crisis. So being able to sit down with these people and listening to their stories and then amplifying their voices out there on my platforms and on these fronts that are still ongoing and then finding ways to support them directly because they need immediate action. The Glasgow package cannot help them right now. And that's Mm -hmm. why I was saying, I'm going back to my country without answers for people who are currently facing the drought because you will not hand them over. They will need immediate solutions. They will not need to be told that the leaders, uh, I asked the leaders to open their hearts, but they did not. Or rather, I asked the leaders to open their hearts, but they said they will come and try and get it right again next year. That's not something that you tell someone who is currently facing the impact they need an immediate response and I think balancing out all these issues is something that I'm really really keen on and the other thing I'm focusing on and and of course that is to also help me continue amplifying their voices on these platforms but we have to crack down the crisis of listening and feeling because if we are not listening then I don't think things are going to move And for us to get the leaders to listen and feel again, they will need much pressure. So we, the people who already have those open hearts are the ones who will have to give that kind of pressure to get everybody to listen, feel, and then do what must be done. Yeah, I I feel you. Definitely. And and I think that sounds like a, a really great ambition for the year in such an important year, not just because there will be a, a COP happening in Africa, because we all know we shouldn't only rely on COPs, but it is an important year. You're saying they are going back to, to what they've been saying. And the fact that it is happening in Africa, I think provides, I hope provides an opportunity to bring these voices and stories to the forefront. I'm even wondering, because what I always found very powerful, my work is for decision makers to actually be there, to actually meet the people that are directly affected, not just you, but I wonder if you could invite them with you to go to the communities as much as travel as possible, because that is a very powerful way, I find, of getting people to feel it. And then, of course, I mean, we need to keep the pressure on. And I think you're doing great work. I just quickly wanted to check in how you are working also with other youth activists across the African region and globally, the Greatas, the the Vanessas, and many, many others that are maybe not so known. Are you teaming up together? Are you strategizing together in any way? Yes, I would say there's a lot of solidarity in the youth climate movement. And just a good example, there's a time when an environmentalist was murdered here in Kenya, that's the late Donna Stachbury, for protecting uh, Campbell Forest. And you've probably heard of her. And uh, this was the aspect of environmental defenders. And I remember getting so much support from other youth environmental activists. And we actually did uh, a piece and an open letter to the UN Secretary 
really on defending environmental defenders. And, you know, this letter was signed by other environmental activists spread across all different parts of the world. And yeah, if you go online, you will find that piece on environmental defenders. It was published by The Independent. And it shows you that there is a lot of solidarity, that if I have a challenge in my country, the other youth activists will come through for me and we will work together. If another youth activist has got a challenge that they need to address in their own countries, we will come through and work together to support one another. Because at the end of the day, it's about making sure that change is not only happening globally, but also it starts with individual countries. Because even before we get to the COP, it's about what countries are doing right now. Between now and the next COP, it's about what each individual country is doing. So we have to work together and make sure that every country is doing what must be done. And again, looking at COP26 as well, you could see that the young people from the global south were allowed to take the lead in all the marches because they are the people, and, and they, they, they are called the MAPA through the Fridays for Future. That's the most affected people in areas. They're the ones that are on the front line, indigenous communities, young people from the global south. And seeing that kind of solidarity and the fact that young people get it, they get the injustices, they get the fact they that you know, the global south is the most impacted and these are the people, they will say clearly that these are the people that you need to be listening to because they're the ones who understand the stories of what is happening and how they're being impacted. So seeing that solidarity of the climate movement is what keeps us going because again, you know that you're not in this fight alone. There are other incredible young people that are fighting with you and together you will make the change happen. And the other thing also working with so many other young people also in Kenya, because right now the other second big focus for me in 2022 is scaling up the Green Generation Initiative. I mean, when I spoke at the COP, I did highlight a little bit of what we have done, but then I kept thinking to myself, because I also want to do much more. I have this feeling and the deep call to action to do much more as well as a young person on the ground. And I would want to stand in a different platform in the next year and actually give twice, thrice, or five times the, the, you know, the amount of impact that I have done even within one period, one, one year. And that's why this year I'm really focusing a lot on collaborations and partnerships and I think moving in that direction then so much can actually be achieved and even demonstrating that kind of leadership to people you know to the children to other people that you can use your voice and you can use your hands you can use what you have at the moment to do something on the ground at the same time then I think it's going to get other people also to be you know cost to do much more. Wow. If only we could duplicate ourselves or more, right? There is so yeah. much to do, and but there is also only so much that one person can do, right? So I think it's really great you're building those partnerships and, and mobilizing others. And I really also hope that there's a mass mobilization of young people happening, but there are also still many that maybe don't feel as hopeful and that are not taking the action that they could be taking. So it sounds like the work that you will be doing will really help you know, getting those people to be hopeful and to take action and to put pressure on leaders whilst taking action in their local communities. I, mean, I really, I think it's really great that you're combining these these different strategies and, and that's really important today. So I want to thank you for being with us on the show and sharing that story, sharing your thoughts on, on what needs to be done and uh, on how we can move forward. 
So thank you for that, Elizabeth. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to today's episode. I live inspired with insights on nurturing compassion and care in very practical ways, whilst also mobilizing to address the powers that are working against. If you enjoyed the conversation, please subscribe, leave a review, and spread the word so more people can join. Check out the resources in the show notes. And of course, watch this space for more inspiring episodes coming up. Ciao!